Hey, listener, thank you for joining us for this installment of the Restoration Project's weekly podcast. We are currently studying the Book of Ruth. Many people approach this well-known story as a romance between Ruth and Boaz, but it's a bit more than that. A lot more, actually. It's a story of grief and loss, bitterness and resentment. It's a story of including the stranger. It's a story of the radical and costly commitment modeled by some of the book's main characters and God's unending faithfulness even in the midst of tragedy. Ultimately, it's a story of redemption and restoration and hope. There is a lot to consider in this beautiful and ancient work of art. And as we hope to make clear, it points us ahead to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Enjoy the episode. Last week, we began a series on the book of Ruth. We started in a pretty strange way, though. We spent most of our time looking at the book of Judges, which we will talk about in a minute. We're going to pick up, though, in Ruth chapter 1. And to be honest, I had a hard time figuring out how to break this up. Uh, Ruth is a beautifully crafted story that's driven by dialogue. And in Ruth chapter one, we see a few interchanges between Naomi and her daughters-in-law, which kind of drives the the entire chapter. Tonight, though, I want to focus on the character of Naomi, specifically um, allowing her grief and sadness and hurt to come to the fore. I think that we usually skip over that in our haste to get to Ruth and Boaz and the romance that ensues. And I guess right now I'm even privileging the fact that you guys know the story of Ruth, which I shouldn't be doing. But tonight I want to look at Naomi and see what she has to to offer us this evening. And if you have heard the story, if you are familiar with the story, I would encourage you to try to hear it as if for the first time this evening. This is Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. During the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land. A man with his wife and two sons went from Bethlehem of Judah to dwell in the territory of Moab. The name of that man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the territory of Moab and settled there. But Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Then only she was left along with her two sons. They took wives for themselves, Moabite women. The name of the first was Orpah and the name of the second was Ruth. And they lived there for about 10 years. Both of the sons, Malon and Kilion, also died. Only the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. Then she arose along with her daughters-in-law to return from the field of Moab, because while in the territory of Moab, she had heard that the Lord had paid attention to his people by providing food for them. The word of God for the people of God. So if we look specifically at this first verse, we can see a couple of... um, points that will help us in the setting and the rooting of this book. Last week, we looked at the very first clause, during the days when the judges ruled. And for an ancient audience, they would have understood this time as sort of a a train wreck, a nightmare, if you will, where the land had no king. And this is something that the author or editor of Judges keeps saying over and over. There was no king in the land. And as a result, perhaps of that lack of authority or that lack of guidance or that lack of teaching, people did whatever was right in their own eyes. 
And last week we looked at uh, perhaps the most dramatic example of how far Israel had fallen, how far they had gone from serving their God. We looked at a story in particular that was traumatic and horrific. One scholar calls the passage one of the texts of terror in the Old Testament that have to do with graphic violence and murder. In this particular passage, it was about rape and dismemberment, just to show you that the Israelites had, had lost their way. The book of Ruth is meant to be a contrast to that story. So in the days when the judges judged, and for an ancient audience, hearing that and understanding that there was no king and Israel was doing all kinds of crazy things, during this time, there's a glimmer of hope. There's something that's happening that's different. But in these first few verses, you wouldn't know that because it still starts in a, in a similar uh, dramatic way. During the days when ju the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, for a 21st century American audience, this is not something that causes us to pause. We know not much about farming. We know not much about creating our own food from the ground. We know not much about anything other than getting our groceries delivered to us through Amazon, or at least getting in our car and going to the local grocery store. I do find it very strange. We're living in a crazy time where you type in what you want and the next day a male person shows up and brings you these green bags on your front step and there's your groceries. It's crazy, but it shows the point that we have no idea the gravity of there being a famine in the land. And imagine for a moment that you're a husband or that you're a wife and you've got these kids to provide for and there's no food. What do you do? In this story, it says a man uh, with his wife and his two sons, they went, they traveled from Bethlehem of Judah. This is God's land. This is the promised land. They travel from this place and they go to sojourn in the territory of Moab. Now to sojourn means that you're not quite a citizen of this place, but you're not just there for the night. You're going for some uh, length of time, but the, the goal is that you will return to where you came from. You have some rights as a sojourner in the land, and we saw even last week that there's some sojourners that take residence within a place and become sort of the framework of the town itself, but they're not really part of that town. They're kind of on the, the outskirts. They're in between statuses from where they were and from where they are now. But what's important for us to hear in this passage is that this family, they go from Bethlehem of Judah and again, I have to throw this in there for an ancient audience. What they would have heard is they go from David's town. David, the greatest king that Israel had. They go from that place into foreign territory. Now, for those of you that don't know where Moab is, which I imagine is most of us here, you can see on the... Um, Yep, there's my pointer. We've got Bethlehem, Judah here to the west of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. I kind of blew up um, Israel over here to this side so you could have kind of a, an understanding of where we are on the map. So it's in the south, it's in Judah. And we have Bethlehem here. For them to get to Moab, they would have had to cross east over the Jordan River and ostensibly go south. People don't know how far south they were going, whether it's up in this region here or even down further. This was still during a time when... Um, 
territory lines were being established, but either way, they're crossing over uh, the Jordan River, which would have been a pretty big move and a bold move for them, but they are going to a land of foreign people. Now, this is important for us because Moab is not one that has this sterling history. For most readers of this story, they would have understood that Moab was an undesirable location due to the Old Testament's generally negative depiction of that territory. Again, when you allow yourselves and you open up the Bible and you start dipping into things, it's just so rich with detail that oftentimes we completely miss. But I want to give you a few vignettes of Moab to help place, to help us place um, the negative assumptions surrounding this, particularly the origins of the Moabites. Now, last week we read a crazy story, uh, and this week we've got another kind of crazy story for you as well. But this is the origins of where Moab came from. Throughout the Old Testament, we see a lot of places being identified with one person or one family. And in Genesis 19, we hear a very famous story about Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. If I could boil it down for you, Sodom and Gomorrah was... um, a sinful territory that uh, receives God's judgment. And Abraham had wanted his nephew Lot to be able to escape from this judgment. So messengers show up and they try to convince Lot to take his family and to leave this place. It's interesting that we have assumptions about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. However, in the Old Testament, the true sin is inhospitality. It says in Ezekiel that these people were not being welcomed in the town. But Lot leaves and he escapes the judgment of God. His wife looks back and she becomes a pillar of salt. Whatever that means, she's not, uh, she is not supposed to look back. She does and she becomes a pillar of salt. I don't know what's going on there. But we see that Lot is hanging out with his two daughters in the town of Zor. And they become fearful of that. So they head into this mountain regions. Then in verse 31, it says, the older daughter says to the younger daughter, our father is old and there are no men in the land to sleep with us as is the custom everywhere. Their husbands had been left back in Sodom and Gomorrah and had received the, uh, the judgment of God. So now we have two single daughters of Lot and Lot and they, they come up with this plan. The older daughter says, come on, let's give our father wine to drink, lie down with him and we'll have children from our father. So that night they served their father wine and the older daughter went in and lay down with her father without him noticing when she lay down or got up. The next day, the older daughter said to the younger, since I lay down with our father last night, let's serve him wine tonight too. And you go in and lie down with him so that you will both have, so that we'll both have children from our father. So they served him more wine that night also. And the younger daughter went down and laid laid down with him without him knowing when she lay down or when she got up. And both of Lot's daughters became pregnant with their father. The older daughter gave birth to a son and named him Moab, which is where the Moabites come from. And the looks upon your faces are, well, that's an interesting passage. I don't think that that's something that we've discussed in Sunday school, but it's strange. And for those of you that have been here in two consecutive weeks and you've heard the crazy story in Judges 19 about the Levite and his concubine, and now Lot and his daughters and the the drunken incest, you're hearing a lot of the Old Testament's greatest hits, okay, (laughs) that often go, well, maybe not greatest hits, but B-sides, if you will, that don't usually get a lot of airtime. But these these are things where an ancient audience, they would have heard Moab. Well, that's the people that dot, dot, dot. There's more stories that are strange about Moab. And, and uh, for, 
Catherine Sockenfeld, her whole thing is to say that there's, there's a negative uh, image of Moab. So we have that story with Lot and his daughters and this, uh, the product of an incestuous relationship becomes the founder of the Moabites. Uh, later on in the story, we have the Moabites resisting Israel's passage. So basically, when Israel had left um, Egypt, they had been enforced slavery and servitude, and God leads them out of Egypt into freedom and life, and they're going into uh, the promised land at some point. But on their journey, the Moabites kind of stand in their way and stop them. They resist Israel from passing through. This is a passage again where we see the Moabites and, and they're resisting Israel going through and it's a story that doesn't look favorably upon the Moabites because they're not friendly to Israel. Except in the very next chapter when the Moabite ladies are super friendly to the Israelite men. No, Tim? You don't like that? But they have sexual relations with the Israelite men, which is a big no-no in this time. You don't do that. You don't uh, engage in relationships outside of your own people. But this sexual relationship had forced the Israelites to become idolaters, to follow uh, the ways of these Moabite women. So again, we've got these three stories, and they're not good. And then we have in the law code of Deuteronomy 25, Moab and the Moabites are to be excluded from the assembly of the Lord. They're not to be granted any sort of rights or to be worshiping among God's, amongst God's people. And then finally, in Judges chapter 3, there's uh, the oppression of the Israelites by uh, the Moabite king Eglon, who, if you remember in Judges chapter 3, is that really massive king who's sitting on his bathroom-type throne, and Ehud, the left-handed judge, comes in, and he takes his dagger from his right hip, pulls it out, plunges the dagger into the fat king's stomach, and the fat of the king covers the whole dagger, hilt and all. And through that, the king like, empties his bowels, and Ehud escapes through the toilet. Another B-side of the Old Testament, people. The king had been locked into this room where he uses it as a bathroom, and the attendants become um, embarrassed. King's been in there a long time. And they start smelling something from the, the inside of the room, which is... But Ehud has escaped. I can see the looks on your faces, and I can tell that you want me to move on, which I will. But I hope that you've gotten the point at this, at this stage in the game. Moab is not a cool place. And people would not have said, you know where I'm going to go in, in the off chance that there's no food. I'm going to go to Moab, the place that is rooted in a story of uh, Lot and his incestuous relationship with his daughters and the place where the women had seduced the guys and they've had sex and they've had... Um, They've made them be idolaters and the place where these people are not meant to be in the assembly of the Lord and the place where that fat king, remember that fat king? Yeah, he died on the toilet. All of those things, like, I'm gonna go there to get food. One scholar says it would be humiliating and dangerous to move to Moab, but Elimelech has to feed his family. To seek refuge in Moab, Israel's enemy throughout history was both shameful and dangerous, another scholar says. So we have in this passage a family that's at their wit's end. They have no food and they have no provisions. And the text says they entered the territory of Moab and settled there. 
The author is silent as to whether or not this is a good idea, but for most people knowing the background to this, you can see that this might not be the best. But the author doesn't come out and say, this is a, this is a terrible idea. And really, if you place yourself in this position, when you're in a place where you have to provide, what do you do? The very holy and biblical answer would be for Elimelech and his family to stay rooted in the land and to pray and that God would, would open up the floodgates of heaven and that rain would fall and that food would sprout up in abundance. But in this passage, we don't see that. And people are forced to make decisions. And while we also, um, we skip over the bit about famine and we certainly skip over the bit about Moab, we usually skip over verses three through five as well, which tell a sad, sad, sad tale in the very shortest way possible. Verse three just says very simply, but Elimelech died. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, and she and her two sons were left. And then we have a ray of hope here because the two sons, they, they go out and they get married. They marry Moabite women, which we'll talk about more next week as we think about Ruth. But there's this hope because through the sons and the new daughters-in-law, there might be offspring, which for Naomi would be hope because then she'd have someone to provide for her and someone to, to help take care of her. It was not a great thing to be a widow in the ancient Near East. It's not a great thing to be a widow here in America either. But for an ancient Near Eastern woman left on her own, it was close to a death sentence. And we see in these couple of verses that Elimelech dies and then very quickly after Malon and Kilion take these Moabite women, it says that they stay in the land for 10 years, but the author very tersely says, and then they too died. Only the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. One scholar says about Naomi and her situation, from wife to widow, from mother to no mother, Naomi is stripped of all identity. The security of husband and children, which a male-dominated culture affords its women, is hers no longer. The definition of worth by which it values the female applies to her no more. The blessings of old age, which it gives through progeny, are there no longer. Stranger in a foreign land, this woman is a victim of death and life. And I don't think it's a great idea for us to psychologize the text here, but I don't think that Naomi has necessarily had much of a voice in our society. We don't, especially in the American church, we don't really like to focus on grief and loss we don't like to give space for bitterness and resentment, especially bitterness and resentment towards God, because you need to clean that up. You need to get over that very quickly because God doesn't want you to be bitter or resentful. There's no place here for, for anger. There's no place here for loneliness. There's no place for numbness and ambivalence. And there's no place for rage and confusion. There's no place for these feelings that people go through in the midst of loss and death. In fact, most of the times we sort of pressure people to get over things quickly so that life can resume. We might even pressure people to, to get back on the horse, so to speak, or get back to work or get back to whatever because life goes on. And we don't usually take time to 
understand or to, to celebrate grief. We don't take time to sit with people in the midst of life's worst, worst difficulties, to just sit and be quiet. When I was teaching high school, I used to say, if you ever find yourself at a funeral, do not be the person who goes through the line and says something about God's purpose, or do not be the person in the line who goes through and says something about it's going to be okay, or at all. Like, we just have these Christian cliches that we throw out that may have truth to them, but I don't know why we feel so hell-bent on breaking them out at perhaps the worst times possible where we don't just allow people to grieve. And thinking through this passage with Naomi, I don't think that we've necessarily given her the opportunity to grieve because we want to rush past Naomi and immediately get to Booth and Roaz. <laughs> we want to get to Ruth and Boaz. Side note, when I was in seminary, there was... Um, this person, sorry, Tim, uh, who did a, a free reading of the Ruth story, and that was the whole shtick. It was Booth and Roaz. So there is some rooting in this, and perhaps if I find that, I'll memorize it and go over it with you. No, I won't. But we usually skip past Naomi and her grief, and we try to get to the good stuff. In chapter one, the good stuff is when, when Naomi keeps forcing her um, daughters-in-law to go back home, and we'll look at this later, but Ruth has this great confession of faith. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I'll go wherever you go, Naomi. You cannot get rid of me yet. And that's the passage that we like, but the passage that we don't like is Naomi, who is broken, defeated, bitter, filled with resentment towards God. We don't like it because we don't understand it, even though there are times in our lives when we live in the midst of that emotion. But here for, for Naomi, the text, it says that she, after all of this tragedy has befallen upon her and uh, upon her household, we also have Ruth and Orpah who are mourning uh, the loss of their husbands as well. The text says that she arose to return she and her two daughters-in-law begin to uh, get up to go back home because Naomi had heard, get this, that the Lord had paid attention to his people by providing food for them back home. And just to think about a couple of phrases from that line, Naomi gets up to return. Naomi now as a 40-ish year old woman who has nothing who has lost her husband and her children, is no better off with regard to food than she really was when she left. She's going to go back home to her people and face the judgment, the condemnation, perhaps the I told you so's, and be with those people in the midst of her brokenness, perhaps what she might wear as her failure certainly what she has seen as her insecurity. And she's returning because Yahweh had paid attention. Now, if we could just uh, entertain this thought for a moment. What about me? What about me, Lord? You paid attention to them, great. You give them some food. My husband's dead. My kids are dead. I've got nothing. What about me? 
I'm just supposed to go back home and everything's gonna be okay. And now I'm this old woman that can't have kids anymore, that can't get a husband anymore. I've got nothing. You've done this to me. What am I supposed to do now? And if you could just like enter into the mind of Naomi here, and for some of us, it's gonna be more difficult because we haven't faced loss, especially loss to this degree. But if you can just crawl up in her head and make sense of some of this stuff and, and understand where she's coming from, she's going back, going back home because of the good stuff that Yahweh has done for all these other people. Now, I'm certainly privileging a certain reading of this passage, okay? One that not every scholar will get on board with, but I wanna just hold on to this for a second because Naomi's going back home and she's, she's going back because she hears about all the good stuff that God is doing. And then she starts getting her daughters-in-law to, to not come with her. She wants them to stay. Uh, in verse eight, it says, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, this is both Ruth and Orpah, go, turn back. And you can see whenever Naomi is talking, there's this theme of turning back. Go back where you came from. It just occurs so many times in this passage. Go, turn back each of you to the household of your mother. That's really weird. It doesn't happen a lot in the Old Testament, but perhaps she's telling them to go back to your mother because your mother will understand your sadness. Go back to the place where your mom is because she, perhaps maybe not like dad, will understand your brokenness and your sadness. I cannot be the mother for you now because I have nothing to give you, but go back to your mom's house. May the Lord deal faithfully with you. And I just, there's a couple different ways that people read this. One is like Naomi is this uh, picture, this uh, exemplar of faithfulness, trusting in God. But perhaps that this is just me and perhaps this is just my own cynicism, but perhaps there's a bit of an edge here as well in this passage. May the Lord deal faithfully with you. He hasn't dealt faithfully with me. May the Lord deal faithfully with you just as you have done with the dead and with me. May the Lord provide you so that you may find security, each woman in the household of her new husband. You guys are still young. You still have time. If you go back home, perhaps you can get hitched to somebody else and you can have kids. Even though for the last 10 years you've been married to my sons and you haven't been able to have kids. This wasn't like a maybe it's the guy's fault sort of uh, culture. So for these women, they were dealing with all kinds of things around the idea of infertility, but may the Lord provide for you so that you may find security, each woman in the household of her husband. Both of them say, get out of here. We are going with you, mom-in-law. We've got nowhere else to be. We want to be with you. And Naomi replies, turn back, my daughters. Why would you go with me? Will there again be sons in my womb that they would be husbands for you? There's this law in the ancient Near East, especially for Israelites, that when a woman's husband dies, the brother of the husband will then marry the woman and give her offspring. This is what's being alluded to here in this passage. But Naomi's saying, I don't have kids. And then she goes on to say, even if I did have a husband right now, are you really gonna sit around and wait 13, 14, 15 years? You'll be 35 married to a 13-year-old? That's kind of strange. Are you really going to do that? Turn back, my daughters. Go. I am too old for a husband. One commentator says to have Orpah and Ruth return to Moab means that Naomi must journey home utterly alone and desolate, having lost all. But to ask them to return to Judah with her means asking them to renounce all hope of the life she now implores Yahweh to give them. 
There's hope if they stay in Moab, but if they go with her in Naomi's mind, there's no hope. But here's where I think it's interesting to imagine Naomi's mindset here. And as I told you, most scholars and most people that read this book will see Naomi as like this picture perfect example of faithfulness and the the speech that she has just given to her kids, like go back and may the Lord deal faithfully with you. We see her as someone who is upright and faithful and loves her daughters-in-laws. And I don't want to take that away from us here, but I also think there's stuff in the text that allow us to see a different image of Naomi. And I at least want to say that if this image is legit, it's okay. Okay. So In this passage, Naomi says, this is more bitter for me than for you, since the Lord's will, literally it's the Lord's hand, has come out against me. What Naomi says is, my life is now completely bitter. There is no good thing. And the Lord has brought this upon me. The author and editor doesn't say why all of these things are happening, but we have Naomi's statement here, which says, Yahweh is the person who is behind this, so to speak, and my life now is more bitter than what you guys are going through. For Naomi, it's not just the loss of a husband, which is what Orpah and Ruth were dealing with. It's the loss of a husband and the loss of both of her children. She has nothing left. And while I don't think it's, it's, it's good for us to, to rank grief, we do see here that Naomi has a lot of stuff going against her. Later on in the passage, when she comes back home to Bethlehem and the women start asking, is that Naomi? I mean, it's been 10 plus years. Is that really her? Where's her family? She says to them, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant or beautiful or something to that effect. Call me Mara for the almighty, uh, that technical term there is Shaddai, for Shaddai has made me very bitter. I went away full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. One commentator says Naomi's outcry blames God for what has transpired in her life and her spirit has been crushed beyond the point of prayer. John Golden Gay says something similar. When, when there is no reason for your life collapsing, there is nothing you can do but protest. And here, this is a technical term where it's basically you kind of clench your fists and you cry out to God. 99 times out of 100 in the Old Testament, there's a crying out to God that eventually turns to trust. How long, O Lord? How long must this endure? How long will my enemies triumph against me? Yet I will trust you. We've talked about this before. There is one passage in Psalm, Psalm 88, that does not turn to trust. The last line says something to the effect of darkness is my closest friend. But these protests where you're crying out to God with everything that you have in you, this is the only thing that you can do, according to John Golden Gate. But Naomi has not reached the point where she can lift her voice and protest to God. Throughout chapter one, she keeps talking about God. She keeps trying to bless her daughters-in-law, but there is no prayer from Naomi here. It's just bitterness. It's just resentment. It's just the um, identification that Yahweh or God has done this to me. I went away full and now I have nothing. There is no prayer. And I love the humanness of that picture. Because I think that there are moments in our lives when the stuff has hit the fan so dramatically that it might be difficult for us to pray that prayer. It might be difficult for us to say, um, I'm ready to have this conversation. 
It might be difficult for us to want to be in that moment, and it's easier for us to avoid it, to do exactly what Naomi seems to be doing here. And this is not something that the church allows us to have space to discuss. The moments when grief is so palpable in your life and the only thing that you can do is protest and perhaps cling to that bit of faith and trust that you have where you say, yet I will hang on here for a bit and see what's going on. We don't talk about those prayers and we don't really give space to this kind of lament that allows people to be in the midst of the loss of a husband and kids, to be in the midst of a loss of whatever it is that perhaps you might be going through or have gone through in the past, a relationship, a divorce, a financial issue. Perhaps it's something that was not uh, brought on by you, but it was something that was brought towards you. And there's bitterness and there's resentment against people out there somewhere that have hurt you. Perhaps you haven't been the one that says, Yahweh, you did this to me, or God, you did this to me. But we live in that space of anger and bitterness and the best that we have sometimes is to protest yet we don't always allow ourselves to do that if we're thinking about um, Naomi's mindset too I think that this is important so Orpah has left at one point she just says you know what Naomi you're right they hug they kiss they mourn and she goes off the author does not say that's a bad decision for her to make uh, it's a very practical decision, and that seems to be okay within the text. But Ruth is not having it. And this is why people love Ruth, because she's so like, that's a good word. Yeah, she's, she's just got stuff that she's trying to do, and she's not going to let anybody tell her what it is that she's going to do. So Naomi says, look, your sister-in-law is returning to her people and to her gods. That's like a trump card. Look, your sister-in-law, she gets it. She's going back home and she can celebrate uh, and worship her gods again, but you're still hanging out with me. Turn back after your sister-in-law. Do what she did. And this is where we get Ruth's beautiful speech. Don't urge me to abandon you, mom, to turn back from following after you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. That's a massive statement for a foreign person to say. Everything that I know and everything that I am, forget it. I'm going where you're going. If we're going to Bethlehem and Judah, great. I won't be a Moabitess anymore. I'll be whatever it is that you're gonna be. And the gods that you worship and serve, yeah, I'll just go ahead and worship them too. Chemosh, forget it. It doesn't matter because when we were in Moab, that's who we, we worship, and now we'll go and Yahweh seems like a pretty good one for me. So she's like starting to, to make this shift. Wherever you die, I will die. I will die in the land that I am not from. In the ancient Near East, that's massive. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do this to me. May Yahweh do this to me. And more so if even death separates me from you. Get Naomi's response. When she saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking. She just gave up. We, we, have, we have so thought about this moment where like they have this cinematic like, embrace and like, oh yes, you're staying with me. I love you, Ruth. Let's do this. And it's like Laverne and Shirley and they start like, <laughs> we're gonna make it after all. That's none of this. Ruth has this big, powerful speech and Naomi's like, whatever. <laughs> and there's nothing else in this chapter about the interaction between these two. So Ruth just has this great, like, I got you sort of moment. And Naomi's like. <laughs> and the way they go. 
And I think that that says some, now some scholars have really read into this and said that Naomi was uh, just so overdramatic about it. And I don't know if this is the best reading. I don't know if Naomi is like the paragon of faithfulness and virtue. I don't know if she like really loves her daughters-in-law and wants the best for them. I don't know if she can see past her own grief and her own resentment and bitterness. I don't know what's happening here, but in this text, I think there's a little crack in the door where we can see that she, she's pretty messed up. Even when she gets back home and people say, is that really Naomi? And she goes into the speech, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara because I'm bitter and Yahweh has brought his hand against me. I went away full, but now I'm empty. And you see like little Ruth in the background, like, what about me? You're not too empty. I mean, I'm here, right? No, in chapter one, it's like, forget it, Ruth. You're, get out of here. I'm empty. I've got nothing. They returned, but they return in silence. And Naomi returns in her mind with absolutely nothing. And Yahweh did it to her. What do you do with that? Perhaps this is the wrong ending to this text or this sermon or this talk or whatever we want to call it. And I think that we might all be waiting for the hope, right? We might all be waiting for the altar call and me saying like, Jesus makes it better. It's going to be okay. But I want to at least let us sit for a moment. I believe that there is hope. Regardless of what you're facing, regardless of what you've been through, I believe that Jesus offers hope. I'm one of the pastors at a church called the Restoration Project for crying out loud. I believe that restoration can happen and I believe that we can be made whole and restored through Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection and our belief in him allows us to participate with him in bringing heaven to earth here and now. I believe in really churchy terms that we are building for the kingdom, that the things that we do now have eternal significance, not because they're gonna make our mansions in the sky any more beautiful than they are. It's because they matter for people here and now. And I believe that they matter because Jesus thinks that they matter. When we can be about the work that Jesus is about, that is an end in and of itself, regardless of what happens to me after I die. If we can get on board with that, then we can see, I think, a glimpse of what Jesus is doing here and now through us. And we can offer that to people in the midst of the grief and in the midst of the resentment and in the midst of the bitterness. However, I think that for some of us and for some of the people that you know, the message of hope that we offer is our presence. The message of hope that we offer is our participation and our solidarity with them in the midst of some of life's biggest and worst tragedies. I think that what we learn from Naomi is there's a moment for you to shake your fist and to grit your teeth and to say, what the heck? are you doing? And for us to be standing right next to them in solidarity. I don't think that that cheapens the restoration that is available in Jesus. I don't think that that cheapens the hope that we have, but I think it allows us to humanize the journey that we are on, where we walk with people, sometimes through the valley, the shadow of death, and we tell them in the midst of that to fear no evil. We stand with them and we walk with them and perhaps we take some of the arrows for them in the midst of that and we come out the other side whenever and wherever and however as the Spirit leads us through.
I don't want to skip over Naomi because I think Naomi offers us a snapshot of life. And when the stuff hits the fan for us, I don't want us to be a community that is scared of protest. I don't want us to be a community that is scared of grief. I don't want us to be a community that is scared of, is it fair to say, bitterness and resentment. Understanding that King Jesus is with us in the midst of it. I think it's okay for us to sit there for a week. Now, the book of Ruth, what's cool about this is our intro tag says it's a story of grief. It's a story of commitment where Naomi has people. She's got stubborn Ruth who says, I'm not going anywhere. My hometown, forget it. I'm staying with you. And the God that you pray to eventually, I'll pray to him too. And if you need me to go out into the fields and to get some barley for you, I'll do that or Boaz that commits himself to Ruth and to this people. And it's also a story of God's unending faithfulness. Here it is, folks, in the midst of the darkness of your life, I believe that God is demonstrating an unending faithfulness and love, even in the midst of your tragedy. But I cannot tell you what that looks like, and I will never tell you that it diminishes the pain and the grief that you feel here and now, because I believe that that is real. But if we can become a people that understands hope, even if it's a glimmer that we have through the death and resurrection of Jesus, as we begin building for the kingdom, as we begin bringing heaven to earth, perhaps that will be hope enough. Thanks again for joining us. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to visit us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story is, there's room for you here. And again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. Hope to see you soon.